Before I begin my sermon, I'm going to uh, have a couple of teaching moments. One of the reasons is that I'm not really anxious to get to preaching this, but we'll... Uh, Friday was Valentine's Day. So every Valentine's Day, I read uh, from uh, David Hugh Farmer's The Oxford Dictionary of Saints about Valentine. Valentine, third century, martyr. Two Valentines are listed in the Roman martyrology on February 14. One, a Roman priest martyred on the Flaminian Way, supposedly under Claudius. The other, a bishop of Terni, who was martyred at Rome, but whose relics were translated to Terni. The acts of both are unreliable. And the Bolandists were a group of Jesuits in France who wrote a ginormous compendium of the saints, assert that these two Valentines were in fact one and the same. Neither of them seems to have any clear connection with lovers or courting couples. The reason for this famous patronage is that birds are supposed to pair on 14 February, a belief at least as old as Chaucer, just as the custom of choosing and calling oneself a valentine is at least as old as the Paston letters. They're, those are a, a group of letters that were discovered in a big English country house in uh, the date to the four, 1300s. And they're a huge collection of letters that talk about practically every aspect of medieval life at the time. They're an extremely valuable source for historians. On the other hand, some authorities see the custom of choosing a partner on St. Valentine's Day as the survival of elements of the Roman Lupercalia festival, which took place in the middle of February. Whatever the reason, the connection of lovers with St. Valentine, with all its consequences for the printing and retailing industries, is one of the less likely results of the cult of the Roman martyrs. No churches in England seem to be dedicated to Valentine, but his feast on February 14 is constant in the calendars. So now you know. The other thing is just uh, the psalm that we heard sung is the opening of Psalm 119. It's the first section. If you take your prayer book out and turn to page 763, you will see the beginning of Psalm 119, and this will be useful for my explanation. Uh, This psalm is the longest psalm in the Psalter, and it is in sections. And so the first section that we heard sung uh, begins both with the uh, the Latin uh, intro, but also with the word aleph. And Aleph is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And so all of the sections, the sect Beth, Gemel, Daleth, those are all letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And the thing about this psalm is that it is an acrostic, which means that each section begins with that letter of the alphabet. Each verse in that section begins with Aleph in Hebrew. So there are other acrostics uh, in other places, but uh, this is one of the most famous ones uh, that, that you can find. So 
Uh, if I have nothing to do on Sunday afternoons, I always take a nap. But the, the thing I do before is that I open up the lectionary and r- look at the readings for the next Sunday so that I can start thinking about uh, writing my sermon and what they're going to be. And when I looked at the readings for this Sunday, I went, oh, no. <laughs> But there's no avoiding it. What I want to preach on is what Paul has to say about spiritual pride. That's not too difficult, uh, but it, and it's important to sort of set the tone in Corinthians for who he's, he's addressing. But then we have Matthew's continuation of the Sermon on the Mount. And, oh, yeah, yeah. And there's the one that I'm going to concentrate on, which is the one I figured I just simply can't not do this. And that's to talk about divorce, because we have one of the sections in the gospel uh, in Matthew where we have Jesus speaking about divorce and prohibiting divorce with uh, one exception. So I want to say some things generally about divorce and the way uh, Anglicans and the Western Christian churches have done this, and also to say some things to you about how the Eastern church thinks and understands about this, uh, because it's important to say that uh, as well. Paul is writing to the Corinthian church because he is continuing to get information from the the, the Corinthian Christians that there is dissension and division within that community. And it seems to be uh, uh, the result of a group of people within the Corinthian church who feel themselves to be spiritually superior. And while it doesn't speak about this explicitly in today's reading, elsewhere in Corinthians he describes these people, uh, spiritualists in the Greek pneumatikos and psychikos, which are psychic people or people who claim to have powers of discernment and who have some ability to uh, discern things from, for the future and so forth. And they see themselves as being spiritually mature and superior, in, in addition to which a number of them uh, attach themselves initially in terms of the, their bona fides either to Apollos, who was there in Corinth, or to Paul himself. And they believe themselves to be followers of those individuals and other people. And there is a lot of division and a lot of difficulty that has developed. And so Paul is writing to say that you need to be careful about uh, taking too much pride in your spiritual aptitude. And if you believe that you have made spiritual progress, uh, you need to be uh, careful. During the Catholic revival in the Anglican Church in the 1830s, there was a series of tracts, T-R-A-C-T-S, published uh, by John Henry Newman and Edward Beauvray Pusey and uh, uh, John Keeble and others. And the title of one of them was Concerning reserve with regard to the imparting of religious knowledge. 
meaning that all of us need to take care. We may be enthusiastic and imbued with a certain spirit as the result of our own uh, feeling of conversion. But we need to be careful about uh, lording it over people or believing that we have arrived because all throughout the New Testament and certainly in the words and works of Jesus, uh, central to his preaching is that we are called to follow him. And follow him involves some kind of a process where we begin to discover some things about God's purpose for us where we begin to experience maybe a certain sense of serenity and calm, where we begin to see things in our life with greater clarity, and it provides us the opportunity with the beginnings of seeing how, in a humble fashion, we can commend to others our greatest place of safety and assurance. So Paul said, when I came and was among you, I gave you milk and not solid food because you were not ready for solid food yet. You're not mature enough and you, you probably ought not to get ahead of yourself. In uh, the letter to the Hebrews, Paul didn't write the letter to the Hebrews, but there is a, a passage very similar to this. Uh, I have given you uh, milk and not solid food, and he refers to the people he's writing to as napioi, babies. So all of us are in some kind of infancy with regard to our spiritual development as we live. And it's important for us to have some idea about that and what that means. So Paul is cautioning the people in Corinth who think they're, they're somebody that they need to be careful. He believes them to be unspiritual because they're too quick to jump the gun. There's also something I want to say about his use of the word flesh because you'll see this elsewhere in Paul's writings, the flesh. And we would be, it would be a mistake for us to interpret flesh as a condemnation of our physical bodies or of the material world. Archbishop William Temple, the Archbishop of Canterbury during World War II, said Christianity is the most materialistic of all of the world's religions. And the reason he said that is because God became a human being and God came to, uh, as a human being to affirm our humanity, all of us, and that in some ways we are part of the plan of God to fulfill his purposes for the cosmos. And so Paul is saying, when he uses the term flesh, in the sense of everything in the human person, in our internal, emotional, spiritual, and mental states, and in our relational behavior with one another, everything that turns us away from God and in on ourselves, or allows us to have too high an opinion of our opinions and our particular spiritual outlook, needs to be avoided because it is important for us to uh, maintain that kind of non-anxiousness about whether or not we're at the center, because we're not. So Paul is speaking of that in today's reading from 1 Corinthians, and it's a cautionary note uh, to all Christian people in every age. Perhaps 
more than any other gospel, the, the Jesus of Matthew is more concerned with our motives than in any of the other gospels, either in Mark or Luke <clears throat> or with, uh, in John's gospel. And Jesus is concerned about our emotional, spiritual, and mental states as they affect our own spiritual demeanor, but also our behavior and how we understand the need for some kind of internal self-regulation and discipline in order to fulfill God's purposes for us and to be successful. When Aristotle spoke about ethics, behavior, he used the term arete in Greek, which means excellence. So living the moral life has something to do with the pursuit of excellence. But Jesus is speaking today like a rabbi. You heard that it was said, da-da, in ancient times. I say to you this, this is what's going to happen. And so he begins to talk about a lot of things that are uh, problematic for people. Uh, speaking now in that sort of rabbinic fashion. Remember, for Matthew, Jesus is the new Moses. So what we're hearing here is some of the new law that flows out of his preaching and teaching. And this may be the kind of uh, difficult ones to uh, comprehend or understand. But the one I want to focus on because I just feel that I must, or if any of my colleagues were here, they would talk, call me a chicken for not doing it. <laughs> so I want to say some things about divorce. And I'm going to begin, before I focus on this text, to say some things generally. Uh, all the Christian churches in the West, the Roman Catholic Church, the Latin Church, uh, subsequently the churches of the Reformation, all of these churches have divorce. They are called by different names. So even in the Roman Catholic Church where divorce is prohibited, there's divorce. It's just called another name, annulment. In the Eastern Orthodox Church, you can be divorced and remarried three times in the church. And in their theology, they speak about this uh, in terms of understanding a marriage that has to unbuckle as the spiritual death of the marriage. Now, I don't want this to sound like you think the Eastern Church is easygoing on this. Don't you think that for a minute? No, no, no. If you ever talk to some Russian priest about this, he'd No, no, no. But here's what they do liturgically. If you get remarried in the Orthodox Church, the liturgy is different than the one you would, you would uh, celebrate if you had never been divorced. And there is a heavily penitential 
overtone to the liturgy, where the couple uh, read and say prayers which are a confession of their failure and their desire to do better in future. And it's very interesting that when Prince Charles and Camilla got married, the Archbishop of Canterbury had them in the wedding liturgy kneel down and say the general confession, which is not in the wedding liturgy. So when he married them, they knelt down and said the general confession. I thought it was sheer genius on his part. It was very, very appropriate. So in the Western Church, <clears throat> we have a variety of views about this. Let's go through the biblical witness. The earliest uh, discussion of divorce in the New Testament is Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. And uh, the Pauline letters are the earliest writings in the New Testament. They predate the gospel by maybe uh, 30 to 40 years. So this is very old. And Paul says in Corinthians, this is from me and not the Lord. If you are married to an unbeliever, you can divorce them. In Mark's gospel, which is the earliest gospel, the Jesus of Mark's gospel prohibits divorce absolutely, with no exceptions. And in Matthew's gospel, Jesus prohibits divorce with one exception, unchastity. I neglected to say this at nine, and Mother McNeil reminded me of it, so it's important. What's being said in Matthew's gospel can also be interpreted as a positive affirmation of women in the ancient Near East because Jesus prohibits divorce in the way that it was customarily done and therefore women were not pushed out of their houses on the streets. So when I was in seminary, here's what I was taught. Three things. We must consider the eschatological horizon of Jesus, which is the fancy term for saying, what did Jesus think and the early Christian church think about what was going to happen soon? Right? The kingdom was going to come in some dramatic fashion. So just sit tight. You know, Paul said, um, if you're married, fine. If you're not married, don't get married. Just stay where you are. That was their eschatological horizon. The second thing is the freedom of the early church to alter the teaching of Jesus in his absolute prohibition of divorce. Now, this is a pretty limited range of reasons that you can get divorced, but nonetheless, it departs from the absolute prohibition. We also must consider the role of marriage and divorce in our own time.
together with the pastoral experience of the church. And here's what was going on in the New Testament. And subsequently, we were now developing a church community and thinking about the way in which we live together as church and things were happening. He hasn't come yet. How then must we live? And stuff happens. So what's what's our job as church? Are we to err on the side of generosity? Or are we to be absolute in the way in which we believe people should behave? I mean, I've been a pastor long enough to know where I've had people say about people who get divorced or got divorced, they'd say, well, I've had to stay married. I don't know why they, they can't. <laughs> so I'd say, poor you. You know? All of us have various uh, things that push our buttons, I guess, that that's the best thing to say. So what is at the center of this teaching is, let me just say this in the Episcopal Church. <clears throat> the Roman Catholic Church forbids remarriage unless you go through an annulment process where they have to declare that um, there is no marriage. Well, you know, most people who get married when they got married thought they were married, (laughs) right? And may have labored to stay married. So it's a bit of hypocrisy, isn't it, so that we can say in an institutional sense there was no such, it really wasn't true there. It was true there. In the Episcopal Church, if you are divorced, or as they say in the canon law, if you have a previous spouse still living, I have to make an application to the bishop of our diocese and say, may I have permission to perform this marriage? I can't just decide. In no way do I believe it is inconsistent to say we believe that marriage must be lifelong and indissoluble and at the same time say the pastoral experience of the church brings to us circumstances where we now have to uh, err on the side of generosity. Since 1967... It has been possible for a person to be remarried in the Episcopal Church, provided they go through uh, the things that we require. It's nothing like the uh, annulment process in the Roman Catholic Church, which can be horrendous. But we uh, do have a process, and we take this seriously. But my opinion has always been that it's best to err on the side of generosity Because, you know, we ought to be involved in doing everything in our power to keep people in. Don't you want to do that? Instead of figuring out reasons to have them out. It's no good. So this week, uh, Think about Matthew's gospel, not just about divorce, but think about the the emphasis on motives. More than any other gospel writer, Jesus, in Matthew's gospel, is concerned about our motives. 
And you and I need to be on a regular basis engaged in a process of uh, looking at our motives, our interior emotional spiritual states. In the recovery movement, they call that a fearless and searching moral inventory. So we need to be involved in that process from time to time. A fearless and searching moral inventory. Uh, I know in my life when I operate uh, with corrupt motives, things don't go too well for me. But if I, if I make a main force effort to operate on the basis of godly motives in my relationships, things go much better. So think about your motives this week. Remember, uh, when you operate with godly motives, things go better. And uh, you need to be careful, if they do, to avoid self-congratulation like the Corinthian congregation. That that's what the important thing is. But coming to spiritual maturity is a lifelong process. And the good news, the gospel, says to us that God will be with us throughout this journey, no matter what. Amen.